The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Have you ever seen somebody start to come to grips with bad news? Sometimes a little bit of life seems to kind of eke out of them. It sinks in. Maybe you can see fear. Actually, you can see fear start to rise up in them. Ever seen that? Ever experienced that? I know some here have, some here are, and all of us will. That's what life here in this world is like. It is a world that knows sorrow, and all of us will. And the disciples in the Bible, in our text, they share this world. They know sorrow. In particular, in this passage here this morning, we see them starting to come to grips with some bad news. They're troubled by what they're seeing around them, by what they're, what they're encountering, what they're thinking about. They're afraid, uncertain. And so Jesus speaks into their world and engages them with the remedy to trouble. Not a remedy in a sense that all the trouble's gone and the day is bright and sunny, everything's cheery. Not that kind of a remedy. But the kind of remedy that will enable them to look at and hold on to this trouble and at the same time, in the same place in their hearts, hold on to joy. Sorrowing and rejoicing at the same time. That kind of remedy that can put those two things together in them. He speaks that to them in our text this morning in chapter 14 of the book of John. Last couple weeks we've been working through chapter 13 and we saw there Jesus beginning to prepare his disciples for what lies ahead. He washed their feet in the beginning part of the chapter. Humbly serving them and forecasting the cross. And then later in the chapter he gave them the command to love one another within the community. But they missed that. Peter and everybody else too. They sort of didn't hear that part about love one another because they'd been hung up on. They, they'd caught what Jesus had said just before that in verse 33. Little children, I'm only going to be here for a little while longer. I'm leaving and you can't come. They heard that. They got stuck on it. And Peter essentially says in verse 36, hold on a minute. Where are you going? Jesus repeats it then. I'm going and you can't follow me. That's hard for them to hear because they haven't heard chapter 14 yet. And those words themselves sound a whole lot like, uncomfortably like, what he had said previously to resistant Jewish leaders. I'm leaving and you can't come. I'm going to be separated from you. You're cut off from me. Well, his tone here is different. But it's a little bit similar. And that worries them. He's leaving. He's the king. He's their leader. He's the... The Messiah of Israel, not that they understand all those terms perfectly, but they do get something. He's good, and he's powerful, and he's leaving, and he's going to leave them all alone with people who don't like him and don't like them. And that can't be good. And Jesus knows that they don't know the half of it. If they're troubled now, 15 hours from now, 10 hours from now, they're going to be really concerned. And they seem arrested and beaten and killed. And so he engages them and speaks a remedy to them. So our passage is this morning, beginning of chapter 14. Let me read it. John 14, verses 1 to 14. 
Jesus speaking, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else at least believe on account of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Jesus begins by putting his finger on the problem that they face and on the problem that's going to most directly speak to us in this passage. Let not your hearts be troubled, perplexed, weighed down with inner turmoil or grief, uncertainty or fear. And the emphasis there is on weighed down. So what I need to emphasize there, weighed down by, driven by, controlled by. Don't let your heart be that way. We need to be careful in understanding this. He is not calling them, or us, to be forever chipper. Cheery with a smile pasted on your face. No problems here, everything's going my way. That's false. That's not the kind of world that we live in. He's made us as people with emotions. And we live in a world in which grievous and sorrowful things happen. We're not supposed to pretend that that's not true. That's not what he's calling them to. In fact, Jesus himself was troubled in spirit. Verse 21 of the last chapter. Same word there. So he's not saying, smile always and have no problems. That's, that's not what he's saying. The key, Jesus, back in the last chapter, while troubled in spirit, the perfect humanity, perfect example of righteous humanity, that's Jesus, human being without sin, everything he does is right, He's troubled in spirit, yet he still presses on humbly engaging with the one who's troubling him, Judas. He still continues on in laying himself down to love his own. He still continues on, though troubled, to press on after glorifying the Lord and obeying him in all that he does, including going to the cross. That's what he's calling us to, that kind of being troubled, but not being troubled. So I'm saying weighed down by, driven by, controlled by. We can have the emotion of sorrow and grief and hardship. We can experience it. 
Don't be driven by it or controlled by it. That's what he's calling them to. Not a denial of reality, but actually an embracing of greater reality, the reality of God in the midst of the reality of circumstances. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Here's the remedy in a nutshell. Jesus, in seven words there, believe in God, believe also in me, tells us a whole lot. Think about this. You've got to understand yourself here. In this kind of trouble that I'm talking about here, this kind of trouble that's remedied by believe in God, believe also in me, if that's the remedy, if that's Jesus' answer to the problem, what that tells you is that belief, misplaced belief, is in the problem. It's wrapped up in the problem itself. What's going on there is that we people, we have a host of things that we value in life, that we love, that we, that we yearn for, that we work towards. And what happens is that we tend to lean too much on them, to trust them too much, to believe in them too much. This isn't like a cognitive belief. This is a relying, a trusting. We hope in them. And those things are being threatened in this troubling situation. Misplaced belief on them. I'm, I'm feeling the supports of my life being threatened. Maybe they're going to be kicked out. What's going to happen to me? And we're starting to be driven by that. Your emotions are getting engaged. You're worrying about it. Staying up late. Hatching all kinds of plans to work it out. Scheming. Dreaming. Hoping. Maybe you take the other avenue and you go try to drown this sorrow something that's a temporary feel-good, a couple of beers or a pint of ice cream or something. Trying to press it away from you. To deal with it in that way. Well, Jesus says you deal with this problem by belief. Belief in me and also in the Father. You've got to understand what's going on inside of you in the midst of trouble. It's a misplaced belief, a misplaced dependence. And so his solution is two commands. Your footnote may say that there's another way to read that, but two commands makes the most sense here. Believe in God, believe also in me. And there are two commands because of what he's trying to drive home about himself. The believe also in me part. The focus is here on Jesus. Believe in me just like you believe in God. No mere human can say that. That's blasphemy. Can you imagine if I said believe in God and believe also in me? What can I do for you? How am I on par with God? Believe in God and just like that, believe also in me. That would be blasphemy. Jesus is adding in himself for emphasis here. Everybody in that room, everybody in that culture, a whole host of people would have agreed with the first statement, believe in God. I'm troubled, believe in God. Sure, of course. In fact, most people in our world today would agree with that first statement. Most of the world's religions can buy into troubled in life, believe in God. All kinds of people of faith will call us to trust God in some way or another. That's not the problem. The underline in the text is the second part. Believe also in me. He's highlighting himself. So the first verse right there remedies the problem and the solution. It brings up the, the problem and the solution. It surfaces it. And the rest of the passage says, and here's why you should do that. The first verse is a setup. Here's the problem. 
trouble that comes from a misplaced belief, the remedy is believe in God, believe also in me. Here's why. Verses 2 to 4. I'm going to prepare a place for you. Jesus is referring to heaven there, obviously, his Father's house. I'm going to preach about that next week. But for now, just a few comments, a few observations. When he says there are many rooms, what he's saying there is that there's plenty of room for you. He's not trying to give us a physical description of what heaven is actually like. Heaven is not a boarding house or a dormitory with many rooms in it. It's not a place of many mansions, as some older translations that were based on Latin cite here, if you're reading one of those. He's just saying, there's plenty of room. I'm going to go, I'm going to come back and take you to be with me, and there's plenty of room for you. You can fit in there. And you know where I'm going. And Thomas is a little stiff in his understanding here. It's not just Peter that doesn't get things. Thomas doesn't get it either. All 11 of these guys, they believe but their belief, though it's genuine, is mixed in with a whole bunch of misunderstanding, um, immature understanding. We can take some comfort in that. We're kind of like them in some ways. Well, he says, how do we know the way? We don't even know where you're going. You didn't answer Peter's question. Peter said, where are you going? And they're waiting for Jericho, Capernaum, something like that. Oh, you're leaving. You're going to go to Jericho. We do know the way to Jericho. Fine, got that. But he never answered. Where are you going? Obviously, Jesus is talking about something else on the spiritual plane up here. He's talking about heaven, the very presence of God. How do you get there? What's the way to there? Verse 6. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. What's the way? I am. It's another double meaning there of the name of the Lord from the Old Testament. We've seen this a bunch of times in this book. And on the one hand, it's totally normal. This is the way he would have to say that sentence. I am the way. You have to say, I am the name of the Lord. And on the other hand, that is such a loaded statement in this book. They must have heard when he said, I am the way. There must have been a little buzz because of what he has how he has taken that name on himself so many times previously in this book. The name of the Lord. I am the way. Not, I tell you the way. Not, I have created a way for you to diligently follow. I am the way. Like saying, like think of a bridge. Not, I tell you where the bridge, not, I build a bridge. I am the bridge. I take you someplace. Come to me. If by faith you come to him, he will connect you to the place where he is going. Do that in a little bit. This is an extremely exclusive statement. I am the way. No one comes except through me. You cannot say, Jesus does not allow a person to say, I'm with God, I love God, I worship God, I follow God, I'm one of God's children, unless you consciously come to and embrace by faith this Jesus. Not some other definition of Jesus, this Jesus. This one. You have to. You skip the Jesus of the Bible and you miss God. 
the only God who is. That's really narrow. That's really exclusive, pretty arrogant even. I hope not to say that arrogantly in my tone, but I do have to say that clearly because Jesus said it and it's true. There is only one way to God. He is the way because he is the truth and the life. He is the truth. All that is true about God, all that God is, all that he teaches to people, all that he requires, all of his nature and his character, all of it in Jesus and in Jesus only. He is the truth. There isn't any truth outside of him anywhere else. All of it is contained in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwelling here in a body, sitting in that room. Right there at that time. He is the truth. If you skip Jesus, you miss the truth and you go into error. He's the way, the truth, and he is the life. Truth with a capital T, life with a capital L. He is the life that God is, that God has in him and then given by him to others. If you want life, you must come to Jesus. This is life, not physical life here. I'm talking about life in here. Real life, genuine life, only in Jesus. Truth, only in Jesus. The way, only in Jesus. If you avoid him, you miss God. You avoid him, you miss the only way that God has satisfied his wrath. You avoid him, you miss the only way that God pours out mercy and grace to people. There isn't any other way with God except through Jesus. He's one with the Father. The next paragraph continues on to describe that. Unique relationship. One with the Father. The Father is in me. I am in the Father. Previously he said, I and the Father are one. The beginning of the book, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and God was the Word. Jesus is unique. That's why he can be the way, the truth of life. Last paragraph, verses 12 to 14. More reason to trust him here. If and as you swing your trust over onto him, he says, anyone who believes in me, as you swing your trust over onto him, what happens? Amazing stuff happens in and through you. The power of God poured out on you and then through you to others. Jesus answers prayer and will act on your behalf. I will do it, he says. There's hope in that. There's hope throughout this whole passage. It begins with the disciples threatened, wrestling with things, tempted to be troubled in a controlling way. And then he piles on hope throughout. He calls them away from being controlled by that to resolute faith in himself. And he gives to them and to us two fundamental reasons to do that. I'm going to break this into two basic reasons. I hope that God will grab you with this and help you understand it and see it. That it will work in you with these two reasons so as to cause you to not fear and not be troubled, but to trust. I want to sum this up this morning. I might put it like this. Be not troubled, but instead trust. 
Main point for this morning, main point of this passage. Be not troubled by all the stuff out here, but instead trust in me. If you're already a believer, this is aimed directly at you. May it strike you. The danger is that when I say something like, trust Jesus, believe in Jesus, hope in Jesus, the danger is that you'll kind of turn off because you'll think, I've already done that. Been there, done that. It's over. That's old hat. Heard that a hundred times before. Jesus is talking to his believing disciples. The 11 clean ones. That's his audience. We use verse 6 very often. Verse 6 is a famous verse. We use verse 6 very often in evangelistic settings. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Realize verse 6 was spoken to believers. Verse 6 has you as its target audience first. And then we can legitimately extend it to speak to non-Christians. That might change how you look at this passage. He's talking to you with verse 6. Reminding you of something critical. Calling you to daily, moment by moment, trust Him alone. It's a reminder that, Christian, there's no plan B. I only am the truth and the life and the way to God. Speaking to you directly with this. It's what you need to hear. And if you're not yet a believer, may you hear it as well. Because verse 6 does speak to you. It does talk about a one way, a single way, to close with God, to find mercy and grace, to be forgiven of sin. It does speak to you too. May it strike you too. May you hear it and come. Be not troubled, but instead trust. Two basic reasons. There are, there are a lot more than two, but there are two here. So we're going to talk about it. The first one's longer, the second one's shorter. Let me start with the first reason to believe in Jesus. In Jesus, the presence of God with you is secured forever. In Jesus alone, the presence of God with you, God in you, the presence of God with you is secured forever. Guaranteed, made sure, now and forever and ever and ever and ever. The bulk of this passage points towards that, verses 2 to 11. Let me try to show how. From time to time in life, we find ourselves, right where the disciples are in this passage, troubled by things, things pressing in on us, worried, afraid, concerned, confused. And there are circumstances right there that are, that are dominant, that rear up in front of us, and nothing else seems to matter. They're powerful. Things happen in life that are, that are strong, that press in on us, and we see them. What needs to happen in us is that we have to hold up something else next to them. Something else that will change our perspective and help us to think differently. What I'm talking about here is more than just what the, the song, A Few of My Favorite Things, The Sound of Music, is getting at. You know that song? goes uh, something like, when the dog bites, when the bee stings, when I'm feeling sad, I think of a few of my favorite things, and then I'll feel so bad. It's a distraction. The dog bites me, there's bad stuff's going on, I think of some of the stuff that I like. 
and it draws my mind away, a distraction. And that's fine, that's good. Sort of what we're talking about here, but far more than that. Thinking of girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes and snowflakes that cling to your nose and eyelashes is nice. (laughs) But it doesn't cut the mustard when you're sitting helpless in a hospital room watching a loved one suffer. It does not. You know that. We need something far more than a distraction. I can't start to think about the Utah Jazz and have my life go just great because I I like basketball. It doesn't work. There's got to be something else. You need a different kind of perspective. You need an Acts chapter 7 perspective. You need an experience like Stephen there. Well, on trial for his life before the Jewish ruling council, if there's ever a situation that might produce trouble in a person's heart, that would be one. He's threatened there, and he saw something. He speaks to them. He's he's debating with them with a face covered with angelic peace, the text says. And as they, enraged, rise up and prepare to kill him, he sees the heavens torn open. He sees the glory of God. He sees Jesus standing to receive him into his presence. And while the stones, blow by blow, drive the life out of him, he cries out, Jesus, receive me. Don't hold this sin against them. He doesn't die bitter and angry. He dies at peace, captured by something. It's an experience in Stephen's life. You need to live there. You need to see like that, to have that kind of perspective. You need the hospital room ceiling torn open, as it were. To see heaven, the glory of God, Jesus rising there to receive you, to receive your loved one, if it should come to that. When it comes to that. Because for all of us, it is a when, not an if. Trouble will come to you. Trouble might be at your door already. Trouble will come to all of us. Do you see heaven, glory, Jesus prepared to receive you or not? You need to. That's got to drive your thinking. What he has made for you there, what he has given to you, secured for you, guaranteed for you, He tells you that here to woo your heart to Him. You're trusting something else that's threatened here. It's okay okay to love things. Not in a primary sense, though. He wants to woo your heart away from that over to Himself by saying, look what I secure for you. Can you see that? It's awesome. Can you see it? Verse 2, God has a house, a home, and it is plenty large. But by yourself, by ourselves, we have no right to go there. It's a home built on a foundation of righteousness and justice, and that is not us. Bless God that he sent his son to come down and live and obey all of the law perfectly on our behalf, and then go to the cross to die on our behalf to make us able to go there, to make a way. You're not there physically yet, but you have a reservation kept for you by God because of Jesus. 
Jesus' word to you. Is he going to go and come back and take you to be with him? Now, wherever you are at that point, if you've already died and you're waiting for the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth, waiting for God to wipe it all clean and make it new, or if you're still here at that time, either way, he's going to take you and he's going to have you to be with him forever. We're talking about heaven here, secured for you. But in talking about heaven, be careful in how you think about it and how you speak about it and what you emphasize. You need to see something here. The thing we need, the thing we need to see, is not exactly, primarily, heaven. In verse 2, he's talking about a house, a place. Sure, yes. But in verse 3, what's the emphasis? Is the emphasis on being in that perfect geographic location in that house? Not exactly, no. I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. The goal is to be where Jesus is in his presence. And verse 6, where are we going? What is he the way to? Not I am the way to heaven, I am the way to the Father. What we most need is not heaven and the streets of gold. What we most need is heaven with God in it. That's what we're made for. That's what we need. That's what he's provided for us. The future eternal glory that Jesus has secured for us is unhindered access to and communion with God. The presence of God with you has been secured forever by Jesus. Verses 2 to 6 are primarily emphasizing that in heaven, in the future, encouraging the disciples to, to know that and to remind us of that. Trust Him. Nothing over here gets you that. Trust Him. Primarily 2 to 6 there. But then verse 7 begins to turn a little bit. He hasn't only secured for us the presence of God in heaven. He's also secured it for us here and now. To know and commune with Jesus by consistent faith is to know and commune with God in His fullness. Verse 8, Philip knows something very important. Some part, evidently, if you read this, it seems like there's some part of what's been spoken here that Philip isn't quite tracking with. He gets a little lost, maybe there's too much theology going on there or something, and he, and he tries to cut to the chase, it seems. Just show us the Father. He got that much, at least. You're going to be with the Father, I'm the way to the Father. Good. Show me the Father, please. That'll be enough. And more than that, Jesus, don't just promise to show him to me in the future. When we go to heaven and he's there, right now. Here and now, show me the Father. That's a good thing. That's a good thing to want. He's, he's echoing the words of Moses, really. Show me your glory, said Moses in the wilderness to God. That's what Philip wants. Show us God now. Don't just promise him in the future. Jesus, show me something that will capture me. Set my heart ablaze, my face aglow like Moses. That'll give me a right perspective on these things here that are troubling me. It'll be enough if I can just see God. He knows what he needs. Do you? Do you yearn for that? I need to see God. Right now, I need him. Jesus' response to Philip I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. If you've seen me, 
you have seen God. All the fullness of deity dwells right here in bodily form. Philip, I've brought God near. I have come. Here I am. Look. Have you not been looking, Philip? Oh, he's been looking for years now, but he hasn't been looking. Look. God has come near, Philip. Now, we're thousands of years later, but that's the same message to you. God has come near. Jesus is available. If he's saying, Philip, I'm right here, I'm available. Look. Jesus is available to you too. Don't make this too complicated. This is basically what we're talking about when we talk about a quiet time or something like that. Read your Bible, pray, fellowship with other Christians, listen to music, walk in nature, reflect on God. God is available to you right now. He's not available to everybody else. We sometimes get too familiar with that. You can talk to God. You can meet with Him. Nobody else can. They can talk to Him. Of course, He hears everything. He sees everything. But there's no relationship. Show me God. And He says, believe first. Come. Then you'll see God. You've already come. Go to Him again and again and again and again. And look. He's right there. I'm talking about seeing with spiritual eyes, which is the same thing that Philip needed to do. To see with spiritual eyes. Our hearts were made for that kind of an affectionate relationship with Him that is seeing and engaging. And Jesus has made that possible now, right now, by His work on the cross. You can have access to God here. Take Him up on it. Believe. Turn to Him. Meet with him now. It's not simple, but it's pretty easy. Read your Bible and pray. God, show yourself to me. And he'll do that because of Jesus. First point here, the first reason. First reason to trust Jesus. Because Jesus alone has secured for you the presence of God. Here now, and especially Emphasis here, especially in the future. There's another reason, though, we should believe in Jesus, and that's found in verses 12 to 14. Be not troubled, but trust Jesus, because in Jesus, the power of God is available to you now. In Jesus, the power of God is available to you now. Verse 12, solemn attention-getting introduction again. Truly, truly, whoever believes in me, there he's calling them to it again, just like he commanded above, now he's calling. Whoever believes in me, I'm going to offer you something here, something good. If you genuinely trust me, you will be enabled to do the same works that I do. In fact, even better. Troubled, but if you turn, you're going to have remarkable power and fruitfulness from Jesus Power to do works like Jesus? Power to do works greater than Jesus? What does that mean? What can that possibly mean? Well, it can't mean more miraculous or more spectacular than Jesus. It does not get any more miraculous or any more spectacular than healing a blind man or raising somebody from the dead. There's, there's no next step up. 
can't mean that. It's got to be something else. The clue is in the last phrase of verse 12. Greater works because I am going to the Father. This might seem counterintuitive at first. This is what they're afraid of. The Christian can do greater works because Jesus is leaving? That at first doesn't make any sense, but think about this. What happens when Jesus leaves? He's about to discuss it over the next several chapters. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, has not been a major discussion topic yet, but Jesus is about to start teaching a lot about him. He's preparing them for an event. The Spirit is going to come. Jesus, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, came down, and this book tells us that he was full of the Holy Spirit. God the Father is at work here in God the Son by the power of God the Spirit. But it's kind of centralized. Jesus. And so if Jesus walks over here, the power of God is at work over here. And if he walks over here, the power of God is at work right here kind of moving around Israel is in one location, in one country, in one region of the earth. Came, he walked around, did many remarkable things. He's about to go to the cross to pay for sin and leave. And what's going to happen? God the Son is going to send God the Spirit who will come to live in all believers everywhere across the globe. God localized is going to become God distributed. God living inside of me and you and you and you and you and you and you. And everywhere that we go. The work that Jesus did while on the earth in the flesh will be far surpassed by the work that Jesus does now from heaven through us. Everywhere that we go. He comes down and he throws open you got to realize this. He just blows open the doors of redemptive history. Who believed during the time of Jesus? A couple years he walked the earth. A few people believed and had vast misunderstandings. And now what happens is across the globe, believers are everywhere. Illumined in mind. Given the scriptures to know the mind of God. Things have changed dramatically since the Spirit came. And you have a part in that. Specifically here, it's through prayer. He goes, sends the Spirit to fill us, and then we start praying. Whatever we ask in His name, He does. Anything we ask in His name, He does. That's remarkable. He repeats that twice here and five more times in the next couple chapters. Jesus for some reason or other, thinks this should be encouraging to you to trust him with, to help you trust him. He repeats it a bunch of times. Pray, I'll answer. Basically what he's saying. Now, does this mean that anything whatsoever I ask? There's a qualifier. In my name. It does not mean... Jesus, give me one of these, one of those, two of these. Sprinkle some pixie dust on it. In Jesus' name, amen. There it's done. Many of us 
really by habit, I think, tack on at the end of our prayers, in Jesus' name, amen. You've got to realize, though, I'm sure you realize that saying in Jesus' name and actually praying in the name of Jesus, that is, in line with what Jesus stands for, if I go in someone's name, I'm going on their behalf to represent them. When I'm praying in Jesus' name, I'm praying for what Jesus stands for. That's really different than saying, in Jesus' name, amen. Kind of blurring, blasting it all out there. Huge difference there. There's a promise here. When we pray in Jesus' name, he does it. He does it. There's more to say about this. Chapter 15 brings up more. Talks about how you remain in his word. And his word remains in you. And then you ask for whatever you want and he gives it to you. There's more to say about this. We'll talk more about it later. But the point here, how is this an encouragement to trust him? The point is not to develop a theology of prayer. The point is to pray. He says, I'm going to leave. I'm going to send my spirit and I'm going to wait on the other end of the phone for you to call, and I will then, in power, answer your prayers and do some stunning stuff through you. So pray and act. But pray and act turning to Jesus. If you believe in me, you do these works. If you pray in my name, I'll answer. 12 to 14, say, don't be troubled. Don't look around and be worried and controlled and driven by the things that are failing, but turn to me and I will through you change the world. To the glory of God the Father, clearly it says that in the text, but also to our benefit. He wants to act on your behalf and through you in the world. So pray. Turn to him. Trust him. He wants to answer. In Jesus, the power of God is secured for you. It's provided to you. It's going to flow through you right now. In Jesus, the presence of God has been secured for you right now and forever. So don't hope in, primarily, ultimately, don't hope in these things and be troubled when they're threatened. Trust in him instead. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.